Well, for our second reading and for our text too, let's turn to the Gospel according to John. And towards the end of chapter 7. Again in the Church Bible, that's page 1650. 1650. And uh, we'll begin our reading at verse 45. The setting here is the Feast of Tabernacles in the temple at Jerusalem, where the Lord, of course, uh, attended. And the Pharisees are increasingly concerned about Christ's teaching and, as they perceive it, his behavior too. And they have sent people to arrest him. But these officers return in verse 45, and we'll pick up a reading there, where it reads, Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, a member of the Sanhedrin, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. And everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This, they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman! Where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And 
And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. <clears throat> so in the verse 10, at the end of the verse, Jesus asks the woman, Where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She answers, No one, Lord. And Jesus says to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go, he says, and sin no more. Now this is a well-known incident again in the Bible, and I suppose we could say it's quite an unusual one in the New Testament too. In fact, it's been so controversial in a way down through the years that some of the earliest copies of the Bible don't contain this account at all. They move on from the end of chapter 7 right down to verse 12 of chapter 8. They miss it out. The reason for that is because some of the people who copied the scriptures early on felt that there was some kind of mistake here. That this was a story that could obviously not really be true and that somehow it had found its way into the Bible. It looked as though Christ was setting aside the law of God for one thing, that he was going against Moses, and it also looked as though he was somehow just condoning sin or winking at it. And so they left it out, or some of them just put a note beside the passage to indicate that there was something strange about it. Of course, the vast majority of copies of Scripture have it, and it's not difficult to understand why some people took it out not thinking it was right but of course it was right it is the truth the Holy Spirit did inspire it and of course when we read it and study it we find it fits exactly where it is and there's good reason for recording it and not only that but it becomes a very precious portion of God's word when we really understand what God is saying to us in it. Now I think to understand it, it's best to go back to the previous evening. In other words, not to begin in the morning when Christ is teaching and the woman is brought before him, but rather to begin on the night before. Now we could say that on the previous night the sky was darkening, not uh, literally as such, but spiritually too. The powers of darkness were being let loose because as Jesus tells us this was their hour the hour of the power of darkness and Christ's own day as a, a free man and as a preacher of the gospel as such were rapidly coming to a close the leaders of the church in those days were increasingly offended by what he said and particularly of course his claim to be the Son of God and the Messiah of God's people and the Saviour of the world. To them he was just a nobody, really, from Nazareth and Galilee, although it was a mystery to them how he had the wisdom and the ability that was obviously given to him. Of course, as many of you know, 
many of them concluded that it was through the devil himself that he spoke the way he spoke and that he was able to perform his miracles. A strange conclusion, but when the devil is misleading us, we can come to lots of strange conclusions. But they thought that it was now time to deal with him uh, before his popularity was too great and before all the people came under their sw his sway and that would bring great trouble for themselves. So they reckoned the time was right and they sent officers to catch him in Jerusalem just at the close of the Feast of the Tabernacles. It was too risky to try to capture him anywhere else because of the popularity of his teaching and of himself as a person. But they ruled sway in Jerusalem and if they struck now they would be successful. Of course when the officers came back I mean they were so struck with our Lord themselves. I mean when they went to seize him it so happened that they went to seize him on the last day the great day of the feast when Christ preached that sermon regarding himself as the water of life and the fountain of life that would open up inside ourselves if we just came to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and trusted in him. And the officers came back and the chief priests and the Pharisees said, well, well, where is he? Have you not seized him and arrested him? And they said, well, all they said was, nobody ever spoke like this man. And of course, the answer on the part of the chief priests and the Pharisees was one of contempt. Have, have you really fallen yourselves under the spell of this man? Can you not search and look in the Bible and see that no prophet comes from Galilee? An interesting statement, because several prophets came from Galilee. <laughs> I don't really know what they meant by that. Uh, for example, Elijah came from Galilee, as did others. But this people, they said paradoxically, who don't know the law, they are cursed. Now Nicodemus, of course, one of them was already touched by the word of God and being touched by the spirit of God too. And he was already speaking up on the Lord's behalf and he said, is it right to judge a man before we have really heard him and examined him? And they said to him, are you from Galilee yourself? And uh, they dismissed matters like that and were told that they just went home to their own houses. The last verse of chapter 7 tells us that, that each one went to his own house. And then the next verse tells us that Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Everyone went to his own house but Jesus to the Mount of Olives. Now we know where he went to the Mount of Olives. There was a garden there, of course, the Garden of Gethsemane where he was accustomed to pray. And our Lord Jesus spent that night in the presence of his Father in the Mount of Olives. These Pharisees went to their homes to plot and to do mischief. So one group is plotting and the other person is praying. And it's no surprise on the following day that the, plotting, the plotters and the prayer meet together. And that God shows himself to be with the one who was in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, as I mentioned, it was a festival time. Um, the Feast of the Tabernacles, which was held in late September and early October. And the temple is very, very busy. 
those three times in the year when everybody is called to be present. And the court of the women and the Gentiles is the largest court by far. It was full of rooms, colonnades, where people gathered, rabbis and teachers taught, people learned and people discussed. And although, of course, the main events were the sacrificial events that occurred during these times of festivals, one of the great things that people looked forward to was just the opportunity to have fellowship amongst themselves and to hear the truths of God being taught and being shared amongst the people. Now, just as is true amongst ourselves, or at least has been, uh, at times of communion, we enjoyed the ordinance and the preaching of the word around the ordinance and the fellowship of the Lord's people accompanying that ordinance. And there's no doubt where most people gathered during the festival when the teachers taught in Christ's day, because the Lord had drawn people to an unusual degree. And as he taught in the temple, well, I'm quite sure we could understand why most of the thousands of the people in the temple would gather around the Lord himself. And um, as he was teaching, there was an unexpected interruption this particular morning because the chief priests and the Pharisees who were so busy plotting his arrest and, in fact, his death were actually coming through the gates of the temple dragging this woman with them. And um, they, take them, they take her right into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and I suppose pretty much effectively cast her at his feet. She has apparently been caught in adultery, in flagrante, as they say, in the very act, or so they say anyway. Now, in a way, uh, it wasn't unusual, sad to say. People tell us anyway. Uh, but people would use opportunities like this to engage in this kind of behaviour. The Feast of Tabernacles particularly because no one lived in their own house. It was required of people at the time of the Feast of the Tabernacles to live in a tent for a certain designated period so that they would remember the wilderness wanderings of their fathers when God sustained and kept them as they tabernacled their way through the wilderness. Now, we're following that path uh, morning by morning in the book of Exodus. But God appointed the tabernacle feast to remember the wilderness soldier. And of course those who were spiritual amongst them took the opportunity to do exactly that. And each day and night they lived in the tent. They remembered the goodness and kindness of God to their wandering forefathers and now to themselves safe in the promised land. Others who weren't uh, so diligent or so pious or so spiritual sometimes took the opportunity for a very different kind of behaviour. And it seems that this woman was caught just in that kind of situation. Now, it's not difficult in a way to smell a rat in connection with all these proceedings here. If she was caught in flagrante in the very act, where is the man? I suppose that sometimes when people make laws, they make laws that favour themselves and uh, they strengthen their own power and so on. But the law of God is always fair and righteous and just. 
There was no difference in the way in which a man was dealt with in adultery and a woman dealt with in adultery. The punishment for both was exactly the same. And if they were caught in the act, where was the man? There was a widespread relief am belief amongst the Jews that the Pharisees could be quite guilty of this kind of behaviour themselves. But their religious observances of their tithes and their sacrifices was a kind of veneer to allow them to engage in immoral behaviour which they kept very well hidden. That has always been the case. People who use religion to cover up immorality needn't expect to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is one of the worst deceptions of all to cover up an immoral life with a veneer of religiosity. And these people were probably guilty of that themselves. But in any case, although there's no man, here they are presenting the woman. They basically dump her there and they ask Christ a question because that's their intention all along. Now, it wasn't unusual to bring difficult questions to a rabbi and expect the rabbi to guide them in the word of God in answering that difficult question. That's fair enough, it's not unusual, but the scripture tells us that that wasn't their motive. We're told that they were tempting them. You all know what that's like. We all do. It's possible for us all to ask a question, not because we really want to know the answer, but because we want the person to stumble, to make a fool of himself. And here their motive is simply to impale Christ on the horns of a dilemma. They want to know, they said Moses commanded such a person to be stoned, but what do you say? In other words, if the Lord supports the law of Moses, they will exact the punishment there and then and bring Christ into trouble with the Roman authorities. On the other hand, if the Lord says, well, no, she shouldn't be stoned, well, in that case, he is clearly not a supporter of the law of Moses. And that will turn the multitudes away from him, and no one will believe that he is the Messiah. <coughs> so according to them, he's in what you would call a lose-lose situation, or impaled on the horns of a dilemma, and he can't get out. Notice, by the way, how the woman is completely expendable in all this. She absolutely doesn't matter. She's simply a pawn to be used by ecclesiastical politicians who want their own will done in their own self-righteousness. Now, Christ never used a person in his life, and a true Christian will never use a person in their lives. Don't you ever use anyone else's sin or shame or misery for your own ends or for anybody else's ends. Take your Lord's example in that. This woman's sin and her shame is her sin and her shame, and let it be left at that. And it is one of the ugliest things in this that the woman just does not matter to them. They use her predicament in order to ensnare or to trap somebody else. Now, I want to look with you at the way Christ deals with the accusers and the way that he deals with the accused. And as we look at it, may God bless these things to us. 
You'll notice, first of all, that the very first thing that the Lord does is that he begins to write on the ground. Now, it's very easy to speculate concerning what he wrote and why he wrote it. The only thing we're told is that he did so, he wrote on the ground, as though he didn't hear. Verse 6, the end of verse 6. He wrote on the ground as though he didn't hear. Now, of course, he did hear. We know that fine well. But by putting it like this, John is telling us that Christ is showing his displeasure. For one thing, He's certainly doing that. After all, why shouldn't he? If, if these supposed custodians of the law of Moses are really wanting to uphold the law of Moses, why then aren't they following due process? Where exactly are the witnesses? Where are both the accused? <clears throat> why mysteriously is the man nowhere to be seen, but the woman is in trouble? If there are no direct witnesses, but there's a strong suspicion, well, was there not a, a process outlined in the Old Testament for dealing with a situation of that kind? We read it together. If, if a man for some reason had very good grounds for suspicion that his wife was guilty of unfaithfulness, there was a process. Both of you come to the temple and to the priest in the temple. The woman was to have her head covering removed and the priest was to give her a drink of water. Now this water was to be called water of bitterness or conviction. And it was called a water of bitterness for two reasons. First of all because it contained a, a curse. Now you ask, I mean, how can water contain a curse? Well, it contained a curse in this way that the priest, now this sounds rather strange to us, but just bear with it. The priest was first of all to write down the judgment that would come upon a woman who was guilty in this situation and who was not confessing her guilt, who was not honest and open before her husband or before God. He was to write down that punishment in ink and strangely he was to scrape the ink off the writing of the judgment and he was to put that into the water which would give it a bitter taste. But you'll notice that it's not just a, a physical, actual bitterness. The bitterness lies in the judgment. It lies in the curse, in the spiritual curse that has been scraped into the water. And as well as the ink being scraped in, the other thing that was put into the water was dust from the floor of the tabernacle. Now, I suppose we're misled here, or potentially misled, by the fact that the tabernacle is a holy building. Nonetheless, the dust here, I think, represents curse and death. It is because of sin that we return to death. We return to dust. From dust we came, to dust we shall return. So you have the ink with the curse, and you have the dust <coughs> sprinkled into water. And therefore the water does not just become bitter to drink, actually, but it becomes potentially spiritually bitter too for the woman. So after the priest puts her on oath, if she is guilty, the afflictions that come upon her 
are either a reference to losing the child or certainly at least she loses the capacity to bear a child. There is an affliction in her thigh and in her belly. If she's innocent, of course, there is no effect upon her at all. This particular passage was so abused by the church in the Middle Ages and the kind of trials that they devised for people who were being suspected of witchcraft and so on. I mean, all that belongs to darkness and to unbelief. Um, but this is a very real thing that the Lord actually appointed. So all along the woman was being encouraged towards honesty and confession. Now, none of this, none of this was followed. No due process, no proper witnesses, no reference to this kind of thing at all. Just serving their own agenda, and therefore the Lord acts as though he doesn't hear them. So he shows his displeasure, but he does so in a very unusual and interesting way. He writes on the ground. I remember years ago reading a commentator who said that it was probably the way in which we uh, doodle sometimes in our absent-mindedness. That's actually what he wrote. And I thought to myself, who on earth would think that the Lord would doodle or draw? We're not even told that he drew or doodled. We're told that he wrote. He actually wrote. He wrote words. And of course, in writing words, he wrote words as the Son of God, and words that are consistent with his own dignity and holiness and with his own ministry in this world. So the words that he writes in the dust are not foolish words, they're not wasted words, they're words full of meaning and full of purpose. Now I acknowledge right now that we're not told what they are, and we need to be careful in connection with especially when we hazard some kind of guess, which I'll do later on. But for the moment, just notice that he writes in the dust. Now, what he does next has led to a lot of confusion and I think a lot of misunderstanding because when the Pharisees keep badgering him to give an answer and to adjudicate on this matter, the Lord eventually stops writing stands up erect and he says whichever one of you is without sin he says let him cast the first stone <coughs> notice actually the witnesses to a crime to a capital crime that were supposed to cast the first stone that that was a a legal way of making sure that everybody who made an accusation took full responsibility for making an accusation. So that people didn't, as they do today, make accusations very cheaply and very easily. Sometimes people's reputations are more or less destroyed overnight because people find it easy to make cheap and easy allegations. But the confusion and the misunderstanding, like I said earlier, comes in here because Christ seems to be just setting aside the law of Moses. And he, he seems somehow to be taking a light view of this sin. After all, the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, is Christ's commandment in the first place. 
when Moses took this commandment along with the other nine uh, down from the mountain we're told that it had been written by the finger of God which is in that case the finger of the Lord Jesus Christ it was his finger that inscribed this law on a tablet of stone it's Christ's own commandment so it seems very absurd strange that he should just like that set it aside when this is the moral law the law of God the very law that was actually written on the heart of man from the beginning and is written in your heart and written in mine but written on a tablet of stone with the same finger that now writes on the dust of the tabernacle floor so he's not setting aside this law and neither for that matter is Christ making a statement that anyone who judges in a law court should be sinless dear me where would that leave our law courts there'd be no cases no adjudications no justice of any kind at all obviously that's not what the Lord Jesus Christ meant when he said that he who is without sin let him cast the first stone so what did he mean? What's he doing? Well, friends, the answer to that lies in what we saw a few weeks back. I know it's stretching your powers of recall a little bit, but a few weeks back we looked at uh, the parable of the rich fool. You remember the, the man who, who had a, an abundant harvest and he decided that instead of helping other people with the surplus, he would simply build bigger barns for himself and live off the proceeds, living an easy and leisurely life. You'll remember that the Lord gave that commandment because he had just been interrupted in his sermon. He was speaking about judges and magistrates. And one of the people in the crowd said, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. You'll remember that that poor man probably felt that an inheritance had been left and that he just wasn't for some reason getting his share of it. So he wanted the Lord to intervene in that dispute. Now, interestingly, the Lord never intervened in that kind of dispute. You'll notice that he takes nothing to do with civil disputes as such. In fact, his response to the man was, Who made me a judge over you? Who made me a judge or an arbiter? over you. That's not my ministry in this life. Moses gave you civil judges and you have civil judges and use these civil judges. If you can't sort this out with your brother as you ought to be able to sort it out with your brother, well then take it to law. It's not my remit. I am no judge or an arbiter <clears throat> over you. But the Lord said, I am your spiritual judge. And I will one day judge every thought, word and deed in your life. So whatever the situation with your brother and the inheritance, leave that to the side. I'm dealing just now with the state of your heart and perhaps your brother's heart. And I say to you to take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life does not consist in the abundance of things that he possesses. And it's better for you to do without your part of the inheritance than for you to fester with the sin of resentment and bitterness and envy and jealousy for the rest of your days. Far better to be impoverished 
and holy than to be rich and sinful. And the point for now is that the Lord says, I am not arbitrating your dispute, but I will judge your heart. Now that is exactly the key to understanding how the Lord is dealing with this problem here. He's not going to adjudicate. He's not going to say yea or nay in connection with the civil case that has just been brought before him here. He's going to take nothing to do with it. But what he will do is judge the hearts of the accusers and he'll judge the heart of the accused. As he does to, to us, as he does tonight, even in his word. I mean, that's what he's doing. There are a million cases that we may be involved in, formal or informal, but always as the word of God is preached, Christ is getting to your heart. God is getting to your heart and he's asking you, where do you stand before himself? Where do the accuser stand before God? Before Christ? And where does the accused stand before God and before Christ? That is the key, as I said, to understanding what's happening here. And in that light, you'll notice what Christ does and what he says. The location is already the temple, the holy place. Christ is a true priest already. And what he does here essentially is that he begins to give bitter water both to the accusers and to the accused woman. He becomes the one who is trying. Who are the real adulterers here? Who are faithful to God and who is not? He gives the water of conviction. And the bitter water that he gives them to drink is the water of his own word accompanied by the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. That's what he gives them to drink. And he gives it to all of them. I'm not here talking about the thousands of bystanders, the people who were listening to him preach earlier. They're, they're participants all right here. They are eager onlookers. And they are hearers, observers of everything that's going on in this interchange. But I'm talking about the water of conviction that the Lord is giving to the accusers who have dumped the woman unceremoniously at his feet and the water of conviction that he's giving to the woman herself. And he gives that water of conviction when he speaks these words, he who is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. And how is that water of conviction to the accusers? Well, it's water of conviction to the accusers because what they need to understand and what should really be important for them is, is not really where the woman stands before God, but where they stand before God themselves. Now, I don't mean that to sound selfish in any kind of way because the fact of the matter is that we all need to look after our own souls first. And we all need to make sure that we are right with God before we even consider whether anyone else is right with God. I know I've said to you more than once in the past, it's, it's, it's always like this oxygen mask that comes down from the plane. Put on your own even before you put on your children's. You can't help your children in that situation before you help yourself. It's a bit like people coming for baptism for their children when they haven't even closed in with Christ themselves. 
What on earth is it that you're wanting for your child if you have chosen to remain ignorant of God yourself? The first thing we need to know is who we are before God. And we can't do anything properly until we come to understand that. And that's what the Lord is saying to them. Are you really fit to be judge and jury of this woman? Are you fit to tell us where she stands before God when you yourselves may not stand in a good place before God? It's very difficult sometimes to to really know and see ourselves for, for who and what we are. We spend our lives dressing ourselves up in one way or another and refusing to face the reality about ourselves. And we can tut-tut and oh about other people and we just haven't come to terms with what God says about our own hearts. It's sinfulness and the blackness in here. And if we were really aware of it, and if they were really aware of it, how differently they would treat this woman. Even if she was guilty, would they not deal with her in loving kindness? And even if a sentence from God had to be passed upon her, would they not pass it in loving kindness too and in tender mercy? But no, there's none of that. And there's no doubt that the way you deal with people tells us a lot about your relationship with God. There's no doubt about that. I mean, if, if we can't love people who we can see, how on earth can we claim to love God who we can't see at all? If we treat people like rubbish, like expendable things, is it any wonder if people may look at ourselves and say, well, surely the love of God is not in your heart? Did anyone in the crowd really think that this crowd who dumped the woman there actually loved God? No, nobody did. That is why they were drawn to the teachings of the Saviour, but they were not drawn to the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. Even though the teaching of the Saviour was cutting, even though it was searching, even though in its own way it was severe, it was still true, and it was loving, and it was godly and faithful. Remarkably, though he was the Son of God, he was selfless. Whereas they seem to be all about them really just all about them and the Lord by saying he who is without sin among you let him cast the first stone is effectively saying are you sure that your hearts are clean and are you sure that your hearts are pure now you know most of the time when the word of God comes to us uh, Unless the Spirit of God is working, and it's just water of a duck's back, really. I mean, I, I could read here before you the Ten Commandments in all their solemn searching power. I could read them out to you. You know them well. You remember that Israel heard God speaking them from the mountaintop. But even if I read them, you could maybe for a small moment just be impressed with them and say, well... You know, that's them. But you get up and you forget it. Unless the Holy Spirit is present. The Holy Spirit changes everything. The Holy Spirit, when he shines a light and, and brings the convicting power that he alone possesses, that changes the whole dynamic. When the Spirit comes, Jesus said, he will convict the world of sin. And here, 
just for a moment, the power of God accompanies what Jesus Christ said. He who is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. Normally they would say, what's that going to do with it? We are here to apply the word of God as we understand it from the lips of Moses. But when the Holy Spirit grabs you, it's not so easy. Suddenly the consciences of these people that actually seem pretty dead are roused to life. And the Holy Spirit is able to rouse any conscience to life. You sit under the word of God week by week by week and maybe it doesn't do anything. But when the Holy Spirit comes, it does something. You see yourself a sinner and you feel yourself to be a sinner. And we're told that all these accusers beginning with the oldest, not to the youngest it says, but to the last, but significantly the oldest was the first to go. Make of that what you will. From the oldest to the last they went out one by one. You know this normally you wouldn't have expected that. They would just carry on regardless. But that's what the Holy Spirit does. He accompanied the water of the word to make it water of conviction. Bitter water. And just for a moment they saw themselves sinners in the hands of an angry God. For a moment. You know, come the next day they were back to their plots. I referred you recently to the fact that when Christ was arrested at the Garden of Gethsemane, you'll remember that occasion, I know I referred to it perhaps a couple of times recently, when they came to arrest him, uh, Jesus said, who are you looking for? They said, Jesus of Nazareth, and he said, I am he. You'll notice in the, in the English Bible the word he is in italics. In other words, all he said is, I am, ego I me, I am, the great I am. We're told that they fell backwards. They fell backwards. And then, what did they do? Did they go home? You'd have thought they, go, they, they would go home. Or at least if they stood up, you'd have thought, they said, you who possess the power, simply by a word to strike us to the ground, will you, will you not have mercy upon our souls? But no, that's not how they responded. They got up and carried on with their dirty deed. And they arrested him. And they arranged his crucifixion. Even though they had been struck to the ground by the power of God. There's nothing different in connection with these people. They walked out of the temple under conviction of sin. But by the following day they were plotting to kill and to murder the Holy Son of God. Are you like that? Can you identify with times when the word of God struck you, smote you? convicted you but you got up the next day and you had shaken it off and you had forgotten it well in the name of God and out of concern for your own soul if the Holy Spirit speaks to you tonight about your need to be reconciled yourself never mind somebody else whether they have committed this or that you if the Holy Spirit speaks to you regarding your state before God then act upon it if the wind is blowing, set up sail and make sure that you are reconciled to God before the door of opportunity slams shut. It's quite possible, you know, for a conviction from God to be your last one. And one day it will be your last one unless you use it and call upon the name of the Lord and so be saved. 
So all, convicted by their conscience, went out one by one. Conviction isn't conversion. Make sure you remember that. Conviction is not conversion. It only becomes conversion when that conviction drives you to faith in Jesus Christ. Any conviction that stops short of that, doesn't matter how acute or intense it is, is not saving. And in a way you could say that this civil case is over. If there ever was a civil case beginning, it's finished. I mean, any potential accusers or witnesses have just drifted away. But the civil case is well out of view here, is it not? There's a way in which you would expect that to be that. You know, everybody can just resume their positions. But it isn't over. And it's not over because the spiritual case is not over. The Lord Jesus, interestingly, goes back to writing the ground again. Goes back to writing on the ground. The fact of the matter is that the woman is still standing there. Just herself and the Lord. Well, strictly speaking, it's not just herself and the Lord because, like I said, the rest are still around there. The hundreds, the thousands who were there listening to Christ preach, they're all still there. They're amazed at what they've, what they've just witnessed. Just a few words from the lips of the Lord and these people have been out under conviction of sin. Astonishing. But in a way, it's just the woman and Christ who are left. The big question is what she's still doing there. Um, if this woman is guilty, and I believe she is guilty, if this woman is guilty, the big question is why is she there? Doors open to leave. No accusers, no witnesses. Changed circumstances. Her life was in the balance just a few minutes ago. Now she can just walk away. And after a while writing on the ground, Jesus looks up at her and he asks her this question. He, he, he says to a woman, he says, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? She says. And she says, no one, Lord. No one, Lord. Why is she still standing there? short answer to that is because the Lord has given her a drink of water too. He's given her a drink of conviction. And she is convicted as well. For her standing there, it's no longer the civil law that matters. It's no longer her accusers that matter. No, it's the one that's standing in front of her. Because if she didn't suspect it before, she knows now that she's not dealing with an ordinary person, not an ordinary force, not even an ordinary prophet, an extraordinary force, an extraordinary prophet. This is someone who can look at her eye to eye and just search her inside out. His eyes, as we're told in the Revelation chapter 1, like a flame of fire, just penetrate into the innermost recesses of the soul. Why else does she really call him Lord? She knows she's standing in front of the one person who could throw a stone. Because she knows he did witness. She knows that he is without sin. He has the authority and the power 
to cast a stone and to condemn her. And she stays where she is precisely because of that. Because for her now, no absolution will do except the absolution that she gets from him. No freedom matters except the freedom that he can give her. All of a sudden, this woman's situation is changed from such a kind of ordinary one, though it's a sinful one, to such an extraordinary one again. God has brought a poor sinner like this face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ. She is thunderstruck with the knowledge that the one who looks at her knows her, searches her, everything about her, and has power to condemn her, but power also to save her. Power also to save her. And she's rooted to the spot until he actually forgives her. And you know, for her, there is no one present anymore but herself and the Lord Jesus. And when God begins to deal with you for your sins, that's the way it is. You know, it's not really about people anymore. It's not about what people think. It's not about what what people say. It's not about what people know about your life. So what? It's about you and God. And it's about me and God. And when that happens, even in church, even here tonight, it's God and you. Forget the person beside you. Forget what anyone knows about you. It's God and you. And you know, the wisest thing that you can do is not to walk out that door until you've confronted this man and until you have allowed this man to confront you. The worst thing in the world this woman could have done was just to turn around, walk away and say, that's amazing, I'm free. No, she stays where she is because she needs washing and cleansing. It's not just that sin that she needs washing and cleansing from, but every sin. Just in a moment, with a drink of the water of conviction, the Lord has shown her her true self. Just like he showed the Pharisees for a moment the true self too. The difference is that the Pharisees walked out and the woman didn't. Isn't that an interesting difference? Why did they not stay and say, by your word you are able to condemn us? Will you not by a word redeem us? No. And the acid test for you is not whether you're convicted, but what you do about your conviction. And for her, she hears these blessed words of forgiveness. Has no one condemned you? She says, no one. Neither do I condemn you. He says, go and sin no more. These are not easy words to say in one sense. And what do I mean by that? Well, I mean that there has to be condemnation for our sin. Every sin needs condemnation, and every sin gets condemnation. The only reason there's no condemnation for this woman's sin is because he's going to be condemned for it himself. Is that not right? If he wasn't going to be condemned for this woman's adultery, he could never say to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He's effectively saying, I don't condemn you because really in a very short time, he says, I am going to carry your sin and I'm going to take it to the cross and I will be condemned for you. 
you committed the adultery and you've done every other sin of which you're now becoming so aware in the light of my countenance. But I'm going to be condemned for them all. And therefore I say that there is no condemnation for you. Go and sin no more. In other words, think of yourself as a new woman. Think of yourself as a new woman with a new life. And as he says in verse 12, I am the light of the world. Maybe there were people who were shocked that this woman has received absolution. But the Lord explains to them and he says, I am the light of the world. This woman effectively has seen the light. And he who follows me now like this woman is going to follow me from now on shall not walk in darkness. Because they have the light of light of life. <clears throat> Let me just close by returning to this um, idea of what Christ wrote in the ground. The short answer is, I don't know, and nobody really does. But it is interesting that the priest in the tabernacle, or later in the temple, had to write the curses that were due to the person who sinned. I wonder if the Lord wrote that. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Or something to that effect. It wouldn't be difficult for me to believe that once he gave the water of conviction to the accusers and to the accused that he rubbed out the thing that he had wrote. Just as the condemnations rubbed out certainly for this woman. Whatever exactly he wrote on the ground, one thing we know for sure is that he wrote these two things in the word of God and they live and abide forever. First, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. But second, there is no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Wonderful words. And may you come to experience them. Just come in your poverty, in your sin, and in your shame. Look face to face on the one who knows. And allow him to pronounce the sentence of forgiveness. And that will experience It'll issue in the experience of a new life for you. Let us pray. <clears throat> o Lord, our sins, thou, and iniquities, you place often in the light of your countenance. Uh, but we are thankful tonight that you have also cast them behind your back. And it is a wonderful thing to think that our Saviour was willing to be condemned for the sins that are ours. We would find it difficult to die even for a good person. But Christ commends his love to us in that it was while we were still sinners that he died for us. Lord, have mercy upon us in our sin and in our shame. Accept us coming in the name of Christ, O Lord. Amen. <coughs> Let's close uh, singing in Psalm 130.
Psalm 130. A call uh, to the Lord from the depths, and it was from the depth of her own sin that that woman dealt with Jesus. To thee I cried, my voice, Lord, do thou hear, and to my supplications voice give an attentive ear. And how true this is, that Lord, who shall stand, if thou, O Lord, shouldst mark iniquity? Well, who could? Who could really stand? But yet with thee forgiveness is, that feared or worshipped thou mayest be. The whole of the psalm uh, we stand to sing.